You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Well, you're very kind. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, my plan is that we will have some fun in the next few minutes. Is that okay? We have a bit of fun? Okay. Um, well, let me just introduce myself by saying that um, when I was 16 years old, ladies and gentlemen, I had lots of little ambitions. But really and truly, they all fed into one mega ambition. When I was 16, more than anything else, I wanted to be cool. I wanted people to look at me and think, oh, he's cool. That was my whole goal in life, to get that reaction. And by the summer of 1984, I believed that I had finally become cool for one very good reason. I had some completely white leather shoes (laughs) that were, I'll have you know, identical to those worn by that sensational pop duo, Wham. (laughs) Now, could I just ask, uh, please, for a show of hands, do any of you here actually remember Wham? Could you just raise a hand? Oh, my goodness, it's like a Wham church. (laughs) Extraordinary. Yeah, I'm very impressed. I also had on um, some light blue trousers that, again, were identical to those worn by Andrew Ridgely and George Michael in the video to the smash hit song, Club Tropicana. Yeah. Anyway, it was at this point in my life that I discovered another band called The Smiths. And The Smiths had a lead singer called Morrissey. Again, could I ask for a show of hands? How many of you here remember Morrissey? Please raise a hand. Okay, the same people. Um, anyway, uh, Morrissey, uh, he used to gel his hair up into a flat top style. And um, now, I know this is going to be difficult for you to imagine looking at me now, but I would like you to know that in the 1980s, I had hair. In fact, I had so much hair in the 1980s, I could even choose a style. I had options. Those were the days. And, and, I, and I chose to gel my hair up into a flat top style in honor of my hero, Morrissey. And I used to wear this, <laughs> I used to wear this uh, Smith's t-shirt. I had on this World War I style trench coat, but I didn't have the full outfit because I still had on my light blue trousers and my completely white leather shoes. So if you had seen me in the summer of 1984, I was basically Smith's from the waist up and wham from the waist down. <laughs> And as I was standing in this kind of cultural confusion in between bands, um, and we used to hang out on a Friday night in Wimbledon Town Centre, we used to hang out not right outside McDonald's so that it looked sad, but slightly to one side. And, and there's about 20 of us who used to hang out on a Friday night in the town centre. And during a, a kind of a lull in conversation, this one girl in our little group of friends called Caroline Payne, She said out loud to all of us, she said, oh, she said, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? And there was a silence, just like there was then. Um, Because we were all thinking, church? What kind of church would you possibly want to go to? I mean, none of us had ever been to church. None of us had any friends who went to church. And so out of sheer curiosity... We all said yes. (laughs) And so all 20 of us turned up two days later at her church at Wimbledon Baptist Church. And that night I discovered Bible-believing Christianity. And to make a very long story short, ladies and gentlemen, I went back to this church every Sunday for nine months until on the 14th of April, 1985, I said yes to Christ. And that night, I cycled home on my drop handlebars rally arena. (laughs) And as I did, I punched the air, and out loud, this is about midnight, I just shouted, yes, to sort of nobody in particular, as I was like, yes. And and what was happening in my mind as I was thinking, yes, God is real. And Jesus is alive. And when I die, I really am going to go to heaven. And now, I can have a constant, steady joy that isn't dependent 
or my circumstances. I no longer have to have my life go my way in order to have a sense of peace. And I'm thinking from now on, every day can become an adventure with God. I was excited. And um, I, I was in the lower sixth form at school at this time, and uh, I discovered actually there were two other boys in the school who were also Christians. And over the next two years, many of the boys started to become Christians. And it's, the whole thing kind of snowballed to the point where my greatest memory of those years was at the very end, just before we got our A-level results, in the sixth form common room, where my friend James Lewison accused Julian McCorkadale of only becoming a Christian because it was trendy. And I thought, yes, we have completely reversed the culture. Now the cool, trendy thing is to become a Christian. Now, over the last 30 years, I've often tried to share the good news about Jesus with other people. And I've had the amazing privilege of seeing many, many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. But when I look back on my life, I tend to think about just one person, Caroline Payne. Because humanly speaking, the reason why I'm here this morning talking to you, the reason why this morning you and I have met, humanly speaking, the reason why I am in Christ today is because on a Friday night outside McDonald's, a 15-year-old girl called Caroline Payne said to 20 of her friends, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? Folks, Caroline Payne communicated the gospel in her world. And that is what I've been asked to talk to you about this morning, how you and I can increasingly day by day, month by month, year by year, how you and I can communicate the gospel in our world. So let's start by going on another journey. Come with me, if you will, to Charlotte, North Carolina, in the sweltering summer of 1934. Because there, in a tin hut with sawdust as a carpet, an evangelist rejoicing in the name of Dr. Mordecai Ham is preaching the gospel every night. And for a whole month, a group of local Christians have been inviting this one 16-year-old farm boy who loves baseball to come to these meetings. But for a whole month, the teenager's been saying no, telling everybody who asked him, quote, I want nothing to do with such nonsense. Folks, it was at this moment that Albert McMakin made his mark on world history. You see, Albert McMakin had already built up a friendship with the teenager as the two of them worked together alongside each other on Albert's dad's farm where Albert's dad grew prize-winning tomatoes. Albert asks the teenager, incidentally, as I tell the story, would you like me to attempt the North Carolina accent? (laughs) Why not? Why not? Uh, I might as well have a go. So Albert asks the teenager, why don't you come out and hear our fattened preacher? Oh, no, no, I, I won't carry on because, you know, honestly, I get carried away and then the talk kind of unravels. And so I, I, I've been... So. Anyway, the teenager replies, is he a fighter? I like a fighter. Then Albert threw in the added incentive that if the teenager agreed to come, he would let the teenager drive the McMakin family vegetable truck to the meeting. Folks, the offer of the truck, swung it. The teenager said yes. And he drove them at making family vegetable trucks to the meeting. And he sat at the back and he was completely captivated by the preacher's message. And he came back every night to these meetings for a month. And so having attended these services every month, he eventually responded. After a whole month, he eventually responded to the invitation to come to the front to become a Christian. There were 400 people who came forward. He was the last of the 400. And a local tailor called J.D. Prevert 
prayed with him to receive Christ. He became a Christian that night. Folks, that teenager is still alive. And he's now 96 years old. And over the past 70 years, he has probably led more people to faith in Jesus Christ than anyone who has ever lived. And he's probably spoken to more people face-to-face about Jesus than anyone has ever spoken to anyone about anything. And his name is Dr. Billy Graham. Folks, few people on earth will have ever heard of the name of Albert McMakin. But in heaven... Albert is going to look out on millions of people who found Christ through Billy Graham. And Albert McMakin is going to reflect forever on the results of one moment of boldness when he said to a 16-year-old farm boy who loves baseball, why don't you come out and hear our fighting preacher? Folks, not every single one of us here in this room this morning is going to become a Billy Graham. But every single one of us here this morning can be an Albert McMakin. And all Albert McMakin did was he communicated the gospel in his world, the tomato-growing world of North Carolina, but that enabled Billy Graham to communicate the gospel to the whole world. And folks, when we hear stories like this, we just kind of feel a bit energized when we start to think about how we can help people go to heaven, you know, when they eventually die. And then when we read our Bible, we find that if we do seek to tell others the good news, we find that God actually promises all over the place in the Bible, he will send the Holy Spirit to help us. And when we think about this, we think, you know, if at least in theory, I I think this is a pretty exhilarating idea, And when I read the Bible, I find that if I try and do this, God's actually promised that he's going to help me. Here's my question. Why don't I do more of it? Why am I so reluctant to communicate the gospel in my world? Why are so many of us Christians reluctant to communicate the gospel in our world? Well, it seems to me that when it comes to the subject of Sharing the good news. Many Christians, I think, live in what I call the valley of disappointment. And the experience of many Christians, I think, looks something like this. Now, just imagine, of course, I don't know your story, but let's imagine there's somebody here this morning and maybe um, you were brought up in a Christian home. Your parents are Christians. And let's imagine that you were 12 years old and you went away on a camp or a Bible week or a festival or anyway that summer your faith came alive and when you came back to school that September you really wanted to tell your best friend that you've been best friends with all the way through um, primary school you wanted to tell them about what had happened and you did tell them and they asked you a couple of questions and then do you remember you invited them to the church youth group on the Friday night they actually came <laughs> and you started to climb what I call the hill of expectation you're thinking that kid that I sat next to for seven years through primary school, we're now in secondary school, they're going to become a Christian. Let me just ask this question. Where is that person today? Are they a Christian, part of a church, going on with God somewhere? Well, no. Um, It all kind of blew over and they lost interest or you moved away or you lost touch. or Anyway, what happened was you went down into the little trough, if you like, a trough of disappointment. But because you're a good Christian, you didn't stay there. No, you redoubled your efforts. And now let's throw your story on a few years. Maybe now you've just arrived at your first term at university or college, or maybe you've just moved to Ealing. You've started a new job, or you've moved to London. You're commuting into London. And anyway, it's a new stage in your life. You make a new friend, and this person is genuinely interested in your Christian faith they actually raise the subject with you. And you think this is, and you invite them to evangelistic events, they actually come. <laughs> and so you start to climb what I call the mountain of expectation. Because you're thinking, you know what? 
I've actually been a Christian now for four years, or I've actually been a Christian now for eight years, or I've actually been a Christian now for 13 years, I've actually been a Christian now for 20 years, I've never actually led one of my own friends to Christ before. But now I can see I'm finally going to break my duck. And at the very top of the mountain of expectation, ladies and gentlemen, your friend is on Alpha. (laughs) But what happened next? It was the Alpha Holy Spirit weekend away. They couldn't come. Or maybe you then moved job, or they moved job, or their interest waned, or somehow the whole thing kind of didn't work out. And they didn't become a Christian. And probably, looking back, probably what happened to us, without us ever realizing it, is that we slid down into what I call the valley of disappointment over here. And the significant thing about the valley of disappointment is that so many of us Christians live there. And what happens in the valley of disappointment turns out to be crucial. Because in the valley of disappointment, we Christians decide what our gifting is. Let me explain. In the valley of disappointment, I look back on my long, and in my opinion, entirely unsuccessful evangelistic career, and I see that actually, after all these years, there is absolutely nothing to show for my evangelistic efforts. But, by contrast, there are lots of other equally biblical, equally important things that I can do within the internal life of the church. But the big difference is that when I do the things within the internal life of the church, I actually do see some definable results from my efforts. So, for example, let's imagine that it's my job in this church to put out these red chairs on a Sunday morning. Yeah. And so I put out these chairs. They look fantastic. The rows are so symmetrical. I've got it all absolutely nailed. And so now I can see two clear, definable differences. Number one, the people are not sitting on the floor on a Sunday morning because of me. And let's imagine that once a year, one of the elders, one of the leaders of the church comes along, sees what I'm doing, and they say, thanks. So number one, the people are not sitting on the floor because of me. Number two, I'm now receiving annual feedback from the elders. <laughs> so, I look back at my long Christian life. I see, I tried evangelism, but absolutely nothing became of my efforts. It's all fizzled out into nothing. But over here, my chair ministry, I can see that that must be where my gifting is. Now, I exaggerate for the sake of effect, but that's so often what happens to us. But I just want to ask this question. What was it that we so wanted to happen at the very top of the mountain of expectation that when it didn't happen, that's what caused us to get disappointed? Well, I think the answer is at the end of the day, our friend did not become a Christian. And I just want to put it to you this morning that in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus talks about success in evangelism, that according to Jesus, people becoming Christians is not actually the be-all and end-all of evangelism. It's not the definition of success in evangelism. Now, before you respond to that statement, just please bear with me for one moment. Just have a look, if you would, at this next slide. I just want to suggest... Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, that every single person in Ealing, that everybody in West London, that everybody in Britain, that everybody in the world is somewhere on this scale. Somewhere between having no awareness of God at the bottom of the scale, and then probably the majority or the vast majority of people here this morning, people who've already decided to follow Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest that according to Jesus in the Gospels, success in evangelism is meeting people at whatever point they are at on this scale. And through that encounter, they come to see that the Christian gospel message is increasingly relevant to them. And what this means is that if you meet someone at point one on the scale, they're your next door neighbor, and by the time they move house three years later, they're at point three, that is success in evangelism. If you work alongside somebody, the cubicle next to you, and they're at point four when you met them, and by the time you are relocated three years later, they're at point six, that is success in evangelism. Now, why should we think that evangelism is 
a process. Well, the only good reason would be if that is what the Bible says. I want to suggest to you that Jesus' main teaching point about evangelism is that evangelism is a process. And we could show this and demonstrate this from numerous passages in the Gospels. I would like to zone in on the most famous, the most celebrated example of Jesus, the master evangelist at work, It's the famous episode of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So you can turn there if you'd like to. If you have a Bible, all the words will appear on the screen. You may know the story. On this occasion, Jesus is on a journey from the south of the country, from the north of the country, and he chooses to stop off uh, in a place called Sychar in in the West Bank in Samaria. And when he gets there, uh, there's a woman there, And he asks this woman, he strikes up conversation with this woman by asking her for a drink of water. And folks, every time I read this story, I am amazed by the speed of Jesus' progress. Because we go from the question, can I have a drink of water, please? To the whole town coming out to hear the gospel in the space of 30 verses. And I think, well, how do you do that? I mean, wouldn't you like to know? I want to know. How could I leave this building now, walk across the street, go into a newsagent, ask for a bottle of water, strike up conversation with the newsagent, and within the space of half an hour, the entire population of West London is walking down the Broadway saying, what must I do to be saved? I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? And so because I, I really want to know the key, I want to know the answer, I want to know how you do that, I go to WH Smith's. And I buy myself some highlighter pens because I'm searching John chapter 4 for the answer. And I've got different colors for different themes. I've got yellow for one theme. I've got orange for I'm coloring in John chapter 4. I've got lime green. My prayer is Jesus, oh, master evangelist, what is the key? And of course, when you do read John chapter 4, the key does rather jump off the page. Because if you know this story, you will know that during the course of this conversation with this lady who, remember, is a total stranger, Jesus says, oh yeah, you're right about that because the man you're now living with isn't your husband. In fact, you've had five husbands in the past and the man who you're now with isn't your husband. And it's true. I mean, how do you know that? How do you just bump into somebody and like know all this stuff about them? And I think to myself, that's amazing. Of course, what happens is this lady then tells the whole town, come, meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. And it's absolutely extraordinary. Now, You you may know that that what happens in this story is that uh, uh, during the course of the conversation, he he has this prophecy, if you like, or this word of knowledge about her marital statements, uh, marital status. And so at the end of the conversation, as Jesus and the disciples leave Sychar with the whole town coming to trust in in Jesus, as they're walking away at the end of chapter 4, they have this kind of debrief at the end of the chapter about this amazing success that they've had. Now, here is how I always think John chapter 4 should end. Okay, So, just to explain this next bit, ladies and gentlemen, I picture everything in the four Gospels through the lens of Franco Zeffirelli's 1977 TV miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth. And if you've never watched Jesus of Nazareth, you may not know that in, the com- in Jesus of Nazareth, all the conversations that Jesus has with the disciples are all over the shoulder. I should explain why. Jesus walks along in front of the 12 disciples, and they follow in a kind of triangle formation, splayed out, a bit like the red arrows. They're kind of sprayed out like this. So Jesus walks along, the disciples follow in the triangle behind, and so this is how I think John 4 should end. Okay, just bear with me for a second. Jesus walks along, and Jesus says, um, So guys, um, why do you think it is that things went so well in Sychar today? And maybe Peter says, Oh, well, um, Rabbi, it's because... You had one of your prophecies, you know, about the woman, about one of your words of knowledge. And Jesus says, well, yes, yes, Peter, I think you'll find it was rather a good one. <laughs> but when you read your actual Bible, that isn't the conversation at all. No, in the actual Bible, what Jesus says at this point, reflecting upon the success, he says, oh, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you didn't work for, Others have done the hard work, and you've reaped the benefits of their, neighbor, of their, their labor. Now, why does he say that? I think he says that 
Because in this conversation that he's just had with this woman, this woman has said something to Jesus that in all my 30 years of trying to share the good news with people, no one has ever said anything to me even approaching what this woman says when she says to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now, folks, here is how I understand John chapter 4 in terms of football. Just bear with me for a second. Jesus is like a center forward, okay? And the ball is out on the wing with the winger, okay? So the winger crosses the ball, and it lands near Jesus' feet, close to the penalty spot. Meanwhile, the opposition goalkeeper has inexplicably left his goal and wandered upfield in a highly irresponsible way, thus presenting Jesus with an open goal, okay? Now picture the scene in John chapter 4. Jesus arrives at the well. There is a woman already at the well. The woman says to Jesus, I am waiting for the Messiah to come. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus hears these words and thinks, right, okay. She's waiting for the Messiah to come. I'm the Messiah. So he just taps the ball over the goal line, into the empty net. Final score, devil nil. Jesus won. <laughs> An away win in Sikha. He just says, I who speak to you am he. Folks, this woman in our story, she's not at point one on the scale. She's gone past point one. She's gone past point two. She's gone past point three. This is all before Jesus has even turned up. She's already believing in God before he even meets her. Before he even meets her, she's already believing in the Bible. In fact, she's waiting for the Messiah to come before he's even turned up. This woman is way up at the top of the scale in nosebleed territory. She believes in God. She believes the Bible. She's waiting for the Messiah to come. And so understandably, as Jesus reflects on what's happened, he turns to the guys and says, you know, have any of us been to Sikar before? No, we're Jewish boys. We don't come here. Have any of us ever met this woman before? No, of course not. So, Somebody else must have done the sewing. Somebody else must have told her all this stuff about the Bible and God and the Messiah and whatnot. Because we just turned up. So evangelism must be a process of sowing. Somebody else, the prophets, have sown the word of God into Samaria so much so that even this lady, and actually within her culture, she was a moral or social outcast. She was the lady that no one talked to, which is why she was there in the first place on her own, because everybody else was going at a different time, because they didn't want to be seen with her. Even she believes the Bible. Even she's waiting for the Messiah to come. So Jesus and his team reap what somebody else has sown. Bruce Milne, in his commentary on this verse in John's Gospel, says, As Jesus has just demonstrated in his winning of the Samaritan woman, the time for reaping is at hand. All the generations of preparation within the life of Israel, the witness of the seers, the prophets, the priests and leaders, culminating in the ministry of John the Baptist, have brought the harvest to fruition. Bruce Milne says, When Jesus says, One sows and another reaps, verse 37, He's probably thinking specifically of John the Baptist who has ministered recently in the area, chapter 3 and verse 23. So just previously, John the Baptist has come through and preached all this good stuff about God and the Bible and the Messiah and then Jesus turns up. So John the Baptist sowed and Jesus and his team reaped. Jesus concludes evangelism as a process of sowing, in this case done by John the Baptist, and reaping, in this case done by Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, all the analogies that Jesus used for evangelism were all processes, and they all take time. There were four, uh, fishing, sowing, farming, and searching for lost items. Those are the analogies in, the, in, in Jesus' ministry for evangelism. They're all processes, and all of them take time. And so, folks, it is a process. And once you and I accept that this idea is really in the Bible, we can lift off ourselves, all the self-imposed pressure that we've been living under all these years. Because if it really is a process, then every single one of us could get in the game. Hang on. 
You're only asking me to be like a link in the chain? Yeah. Well, that's what Jesus said. Oh, well, you sure? Yeah, it's a process. And so every single one of us can play our part, and we can begin to feel good about our contribution. Rather than feeling really bad, we can actually feel good. So if you have helped somebody, by the grace of God, get from point one to point three, that really is success in evangelism. If you've helped someone from point five to point six, that is success in evangelism. Folks, let's imagine, I don't know how many are here this morning, but let's imagine for the sake of the mass, we say there's a hundred of us in the room right now. And then let's imagine that on average, if we surveyed every single person, that on average, let's say we represent 10 people who during the course of, the, of our Christian life, we've helped 10 people get closer to faith in Christ than when we first met them. Well, that would be 100 times 10 we represent a 1,000 people, many of them living in Ealing, who are closer to faith in Christ than when we first met them. I think we could start to become a little bit encouraged about that. I mean, obviously not too much. We need to guard against the dangers of emotionalism. I'm joking. Folks, you can communicate the gospel in your world, and you can feel like you're already a success as you're doing it. So let's have a look at some of the practicalities of this. Uh, if you're going to communicate the gospel in your world, let's think of a little bit about the, the elements that make up your world. And as I come into land here, this should be a little bit of fun. Okay, here we go. First element might be in your life is leisure time. Now, let me just ask you a hands-up question, if I can. Could you please raise your hand? How many of you enjoy doing what you enjoy doing? Just raise your hand. If you're alive, that should be you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, what, what I'm asking is, how many of you feel energy for what you enjoy doing? Let me see if I can explain. Uh, let's imagine you just come in from work, and it's been a long day. Or maybe you've, you, you're, you're married with kids. You finally put the kids to bed, and you sit down in front of the TV, and you know they're not really in bed. They're just upstairs. You can hear them running around in the corridors. They're not, you're just kidding yourself that they're in bed. But you're lying there you're, you're in front of the TV screen, and you're so tired. Your eyes are almost shut. You're with a channel hopper. You don't care what's on the screen. And you're so tired. At that moment, I put it to you that if the phone rang at that moment and the person at the end of the phone mentions, would you like to come and, and then they mention some particular activity or interest of yours, you suddenly feel energy for that one particular thing that they just mentioned. So I, I don't know what is your one particular thing. For our host, Pete, here, it could be line dancing, for all I know. I mean, but, but, but hey, you might not want to go line dancing with Pete. You might find that embarrassing. I don't know. But, but, but what's your thing? So for somebody here, it might be basketball. But for somebody else, it would be basket weaving. And for somebody else, it would be embroidery. And for somebody else, it would be upholstery. And for somebody else, it would be learning conversational French. And for somebody else, it's motorbike maintenance. And there's like loads of different things. Folks, the person who is sitting next to you right now, their thing would not even vaguely interest you. But your thing, oh, your thing is different. So there are people, aren't there? We know this. There are people, and they are into military history. Yeah? You know these people? You know how this works? I've got all my soldiers in little rows. You've got all your soldiers in little rows. And I've got my marble. And you've got your marble. And then I roll my marble. I knock over some of your little men. And then you roll your marble. You knock over some of my little men. And there are other people who will look at that and they will say, that's sad. <laughs> that's sad because we want to reenact the whole thing in real life. And they are the Ealing and District Reenactment Society. And these people, they put on chain mail, and they put on armor, and they get in their Volvos every Saturday, and they drive to Wiltshire. <laughs> they drive to Wiltshire down the M4 with the green grass everywhere. And they're wearing their armor, and you've got your helmet in the back, you're ready. And you get out of the car, maybe somewhere near Stonehenge. And you get out your sword, and your mate gets out his sword. You go through this choreographed routine that you've been practicing in the living room. And you lock swords like this. Then eventually, after five minutes, your mate falls over and he says, Whoa, whoa, thou hast slain me, thrice woe. And then you get up, you have a massive hug, you say, that was great, let's do it again next Saturday. That's their thing. What's your thing? Do you know, I was walking along the road to the shop near where I live with a colleague of mine, and um, we're just going to get a sandwich, and he's on his mobile phone the whole way to the shop, 
And then he finishes the call. And this is, this is how he reacts. And he finishes the call. He goes like this. He goes, yes, yes, yes. And I look at this reaction. And, it, you know, I can't not comment. I'm just completely taken aback. And so I said, what? What's happened? And he said, yes. So-and-so, he mentioned someone's name. So-and-so has become an Apple Mac user. Yes. <laughs> That's his thing. Just to explain, this is a guy who will only refer to Microsoft as the dark side. <laughs> That's his thing. What's your thing? Now, there's, there's all sorts of different things that, we, that might, might occur to us. But the good news is that there's one thing that you are passionate about. And of course, the good news is there are other people living probably within two miles of where we are now. And they are passionate about the same thing that you are passionate about. And actually, if you met them, they would like to meet you because then you could talk about whatever it is, fishing or rollerblading or whatever your thing is. They would like to meet you. And then you can talk about the book club or whatever it is. So you can communicate the gospel in your world and you can have the time of your life while you're doing it. At Christ Church London, well, this is 10 years ago, we started a church and with the first 100 people who joined us, we asked them the question that I've just asked, what do you enjoy doing? And then we encouraged them to make friends with people who enjoyed doing the same sort of stuff who weren't yet Christians. And do you know what? In the five years that followed, we saw 197 people become Christians. And in those five years, we baptized 165. Folks, if you could find one evening a month, I mean, I'm married, I live in London like you, I've got four kids, I'm busy. But if you could find one evening a month, what would you do? I've got a great friend who is a Nigerian civil engineer called Onde Agogabi. And if Onde were here this morning and I gave him the microphone, I said, Onde, just tell the good people at Redeemer Church, tell them how you became a Christian. He'd say, Adrian, at the end of the day, it really all started with badminton. So Onde goes along to the leisure center one evening with his girlfriend to play badminton against whoever happens to be there. And during the badminton doubles match, Onde notices that the couple that they're playing against don't swear during the entire course of the badminton match. Onde thinks to himself, there is quite a lot of scope for swearing in badminton. A little bit perplexed by the lack of swearing from the other side of the net. So at the end of the game, he just says something like, I know this is a bit of an odd thing to say, but I just noticed during the game, you didn't swear. And this couple say, uh, really? Yeah. Uh, well, do you know what? Actually, it's a fair cop. As it happens, we're Christians. And so, yeah, I suppose we don't swear. Anyway, this Christian couple invite Onde to the New Frontiers regional celebrations. This is not an evangelistic event. This is a whole group of churches having a big kind of worship celebration thing. And during the worship celebration thing with all these people, during the singing at the start, Onde uh, falls down on the floor and during the songs, he becomes a Christian lying on the floor during the worship time. So, he would be an example of somebody who went up the scale very quickly. <laughs> because all he knows is that Christians don't swear and that they play badminton, which is perhaps not very much to go on. Next area we'll just look at quickly are those we work with. Ladies and gentlemen, I continually meet Christians who feel condemned because they don't witness for Christ more while they are at work. And I just want to say that in my previous job, I was a television presenter. And the reason I mention that is because I worked in a 24-hour newsroom, a highly pressurized environment. And if I had gone around the newsroom while we were on air, going around just talking to people about Jesus while we're broadcasting, I would not have been doing my job very well. Nor actually would it have been appropriate for me to communicate the gospel through the medium of my work, although it would have been very easy to do so. So, for example, one of the things I used to do, folks, is I used to read the classified football results. So I could have gone on air at 5 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and I could have said something like this, Barclays Premiership, Arsenal 1, Manchester United, nil. Chelsea 2, West Ham United 0. <laughs> Everton 1, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son that if any of you listening to the football results should believe in him, you won't perish, but you can have eternal life. I could have said. 
And if I said that, I could have gone to the church prayer meeting the following evening and I could have said, I was pretty radical at work yesterday. <laughs> and they would have said, oh, oh really? Uh, what, what, what do you mean? Oh, well, guess which verse I managed to slip into the classified football results this week. But you know what? If I had done that, I would have got sacked. Because at the end of the day, I wasn't being paid to do that. And I look back now on those years and I think, probably my ambition in those years was to make such a positive contribution by the way I did my job so that everybody in the department all said, Adrian Holloway's stuff always makes the bulletin. He always hits the deadlines. It's all about deadlines. He always, his stuff always comes in on time. So what we're trying to do at work is we're trying to build up such a big account in the bank of credibility by the way that we do our job so that when work-related social opportunities come around, maybe at this time of year, it's a Friday after work, and we go across the road and we loosen our ties and we have a drink together, or maybe it's somebody's wedding or somebody's leaving due, and the photos are taking ages at the wedding, and you're just standing around with your colleagues, and then the question comes, and actually somebody mentioned this question just a few minutes ago, what are you doing this weekend? And then in our answer, we mention the word church. The thing is, at that point, they're favorably disposed to us because we've built up such a big account in the bank of credibility by the way that we do our job that people are, okay, so just tell me more. You know, they're curious. They're favorably disposed towards us. Last and final thing uh, this morning, I, I've called this other people who we come into contact with, for example, neighbors. I really want to encourage you guys, whenever you do move house or you move flat, if you go, go into a new place, it is still culturally, socially acceptable in this country for you and I just to knock on a few doors opposite and around about and just say these words, hello, um, I'm your new neighbor, and then you can invite them to something. So if you, if you have got a house, and maybe you've got like a backyard or a garden or whatever, you could say, you know, we're just having a housewarming barbecue. You have no idea if you'd like to come, but we'd love to invite you. And I want to encourage you that if you say that, no one will reply by saying, and what gives you the right to impose your free food upon me? <laughs> Nobody will say that. Who authorized you to merrily cross the road and start dishing? No, no one will say that. How can I be so confident? Well, first time that Julie and I did this, and we had two children at the time, the reason I know people weren't offended by the invitation is because when we actually did the barbecue, we had 100 neighbors in the back garden. And uh, I just want to encourage you, please don't feel obliged to preach at the barbecue. Because it is tempting. I know it's tempting, isn't it? I mean, after all, you've been prayer walking the garden, holding your wife's hand, claiming every blade of grass for Jesus. And then eventually, of course, the day comes when you've got the housewarming barbecue and all these neighbors come and it's a cloudless sky. The sun's beating down. You think, God is blessing this event. This is why we claimed every, every blade of grass. And then you can just imagine that the evening's going really well. Everybody's staying. People are having a great time. And of course, what you want to do is you want to, I don't know, maybe sort of get up on a chair, and then you want to kind of maybe just do a little talk, and maybe you're going to explain the gospel, maybe with a visual aid, maybe the, the burger and the bun, and you want to pour out the ketchup as your gospel visual aid. You're pouring out the ketchup, preaching the message. And then eventually, you've got to move towards the climax, and you want to invite people, and then you want to say, now, if you believe this good news, Come to the grill, come to the grill, come to the grill, come down here. And every night you go to bed with this vision in your mind of all your neighbors kneeling on your patio, holding their buns in repentance. So you can preach the gospel, but you don't have to. It's like an option. You don't have to do that. And, you know, for Judy and I, we were just happy just to have everybody around. And you might say, yeah, but those 100 neighbors, where are they now? Well... Here's the deal. Actually, of the 104 came on our church alpha course, and of those four, one became a Christian. But you know what? When we moved next time, we did the same thing. And this time, this guy called Chris, five doors down, he said, I invited him to the barbecue. He said, yes. He said, can I just tell you, Adrian, why I'm coming to your housewarming barbecue? I said, uh, yeah, Chris, of course. He said, because I've lived in this road. For 25 years, and no one, no one has ever done what you're doing. And he thinks this is a massive cultural community shift event. And I'm thinking, Chris, well, really, all it actually is, is I'm just going down Fulham Palace Road, and I'm buying a few burgers and buns from Tesco Express, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to cook them. So, but he's thinking, no, I've lived here for 25 years. No one has ever attempted anything so bold in terms of bringing our community together. 
And when I, when I think of that, I, I just remember those words in Acts, in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where Paul is in Athens and he says that God has determined the exact times and places where people should live. And God has set the whole thing up so that I am a bridge because basically my next door neighbor is supposed to be living next door to me. God's determined where that person should be living. And God's put me there to be a bridge to help them receive Christ. Let me finish with a quick story about our next door neighbor. And I will change her name. Uh, This lady is a uh, a barrister at the Old Bailey, so it's probably a good idea for me to just change her name. Um, so I'll call her Fiona. And Fiona, um, just to kind of paint the picture, she has these two huge legal drag bags that she goes to the bus stop every morning, and you can see her going down the road with these two huge bags. And one morning, Fiona goes to the bus stop in the normal way, but actually when she gets, it's only about five yards from our front door, she's next door to us, to, to the pavement. And so, But when she gets to the pavement, she remembers that she's, forgotten something, don't know what it was, but she goes back, into, goes back into the house to get whatever it is, leaving the bags on the pavement. But by the time she's come back, you guessed it, the bags have gone. This paru, these bags have gone. And she is in a complete tiswas. The defense case for a live trial at the Old Bailey has just disappeared. And she's in a panic. And so she's looking everywhere. There's literally nobody anywhere to be seen. And so she, she's still got her handbag. She's searching for her mobile phone. And, and, and she rings next door, which is our house. Now, I wasn't home for this, but my wife, Judy, was home for this. And she's like, <coughs> Judy answers the door. Uh, uh, Judy, Judy, have you seen my bags? My bags have been stolen. Where are my bags? Help me find my bags. And Judy says, well, I'm sorry, Fiona. I, I was upstairs in the children's bedroom. I don't, I, I don't know where your bags are. And Fiona's in a real state. So Judy just walks out our front door, and she's standing in the street. And in her mind, this is not out loud, she's just praying, Lord God, where are Fiona's bags? This is all in her mind, not out loud. And as soon as she thinks this thought, she feels God say to her, look at the top of the street. Now, our street is a typical London terrace street, terraced houses all the way up, parked cars all the way up, massive long street. She looks at the top of the street, and she feels God say, can you see that van? And right at the top of the street, quite a long way away, there's this uh, van parked up. And then she feels God say, Fiona's bags are in the back of that van. And so Julia just starts walking up the street to this van. Now, I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, if it had been me, after the first couple of stops, first couple of steps, I would have stopped and thought, nah, the bags are not going to be in the back of the van. But Julia's a much better Christian than me. So she walks all the way to the top of the street. She gets to this van, and lo and behold, there is a bloke sitting in the cabin of this van. And so Julia knocks on the window. The bloke sort of looks, you know, who's this funny woman? Winds down the window. And Julia's like this. Have you got two bags in the back of your van that don't belong to you? And the bloke says, oh, no, he says. I knew he shouldn't have nicked them. (laughs) And so Julia says, well. They don't belong to you. They belong to my friend. I think you should give them back. He says, oh, no, he says. And he gets out of the van. He walks round to the back of the van. He opens up the double doors. There are the bags. He gets the bags out the van. At this point, his mate, who's the one who actually nicked them, he's been round at the corner shop getting a sandwich. In the meantime, he comes back. He sees the bags there. And he sees, and he actually says out loud, he says, oh, no, he says, we've been discovered, he said. <laughs> and he says, well, we just walked along the street. We saw the bags there. They looked important, so we just nicked them, put them in the back of the van, and we thought we'd find out later what was in them, you know, like you do. <laughs> so, these two guys are now walking back down the road, dragging these bags, and of course, Fiona's now on the phone to the police, and she's on the phone to the police, and she looks up to see this amazing sight, and to see her next-door neighbor, and these two huge blokes dragging the bags back down the road, and she's like, she just can't believe what she sees. And eventually, um, the police arrive, and, and, and they t- arrest these two guys. They take them away. Fiona's reunited with their precious bags. And as you can imagine, there is just one question that Fiona really wants to ask. And she says to Julia, Julia, the one bit that I don't get is how did you know? How did you know that the bags were in the back of that van all the way at the top of the street? And Julia said, well, Fiona, I think God told me.
Well, as you can imagine, Fiona is now higher up the scale than she was. <laughs> One last thing. We're 60 seconds away from the end here. I just want to say that, of course, whatever stage of life you and I are at, there are opportunities that come around at that stage of life that don't come around at any other stage of life. So right now, we're at a stage of life where we're married with four kids all in school. And so for us, the school gate is a massive part of our life. And one time I'm driving along with Julia. It's just Julia and me in the car. And she says to me as we're driving along, she said, oh, a funny thing happened at the school gate today. I said, oh, what was that? And she mentions this mum that we both know quite well. She says, so-and-so says to me, oh, Julia, this lady says, oh, Julia, I hear you've been, I hear been talking to some of the other mums and helping them. And Julia's saying, um, yeah. She says, oh, Julia, I think I need a session. <laughs> In fact, I think, I, need, I think, Julia, I think I need lots of sessions. And listen, Julia, I'm willing to pay. Driving along listening to this. And I say to my wife, are you telling me that one of the mums from school is willing to pay you to witness to her? She said, yeah. I said, that is fantastic. <laughs> I said, how much are you going to charge? Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's going to be more than the minimum wage. Anyway, we're out of time here, guys. Maybe the band would like to come forward. Shall we all stand together? Maybe the band would come and join me. I'd just like to finish um, just by making a, a simple statement, which will seem a bit bizarre, to be honest. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, in three years' time, in 2018, the next Football World Cup will come around. And although this will sound ridiculous given the current situation, uh, it is true that in three years' time, millions of people in this country are genuinely going to think that we're going to win the World Cup. Even though we all know in our hearts that we're not, we all know in our hearts that we will be knocked out on penalties by Germany. <laughs> But I just want to finish by saying this, that if by some bizarre chance we do win the World Cup, then heaven will not be celebrating. How can I say that? Because it says in Luke 15 verse 7 that heaven rejoices whenever one sinner repents, whenever one lost person comes back to God. So in three years' time, if England lift the World Cup, heaven will be silent. But when the next person, through the witness and friendship of Redeemer Church London, comes into this hall and sits on one of these red seats and gives their life to Christ at that moment, all heaven will erupt. Do you believe that? Let me pray. Father, I thank you that today we can come out from under the self-imposed pressure that some of us have been living under. We can come out from under that condemnation and we can embrace the fact that you, Jesus, have said that evangelism is a process and that we can even do something we enjoy doing and we can actually have the time of our lives making friends with people that have the same interests and helping people step by step see that the gospel message is increasingly relevant to them. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have to befriend people just like you did. And we thank you, Lord, for all of the people in this area, the, 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 the hundreds of thousands of people who can come and gradually move step by step by step closer to faith in Christ, who will come and make up the majority of this church because they're coming to know Jesus personally. We thank you for what you're going to do. We thank you that before you come back, Lord Jesus, every tribe and every tongue and every language will hear the good news. We thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do as you help many people come to eternal life. We thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, and thanks for listening to me.